1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to pick up with verse 7, picking up where we left off last week. 1 Peter 4, beginning with verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Last week, as we resumed our study here in 1 Peter, we saw that Peter put the suffering of the saints in perspective to the suffering of Christ. He brought to light all that Christ's sufferings afford us. Now we come to a section where Peter turns his attention to this reality that that suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who came to offer himself as the ransom for many, will return again, and he will return as a conquering king, we know. In response to the truth of Christ's return, Peter encourages believers to take deliberate action. And so that's what we see in this passage of 1 Peter. These truths and how to respond to them with deliberate action. And so this morning, let's just pull apart the layers of this text and see what Peter mentions. He begins by recognizing the end. The very first thing he brings to light is the recognition of the end. You will note that there in verse 7, where he says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. He speaks of the end. He recognizes the end. Now, when he speaks of that, this is a reference to the return of Jesus Christ. So when Peter mentions here, the end of all things is at hand, he's referencing the return of Jesus. He's saying the return of Jesus is at hand. When he uses the word end there, that particular word used in this context means the consummation, the fulfillment a purpose attained, a goal achieved. It's not just the end period, we came to the stopping point. It's a reference to the consummation, the fulfillment, the purpose that has been attained. It is the point in time when God the Father enacts the consummation of his eternal promises and fulfills his eternal purpose. That's what's meant by the end there. The consummation of the eternal promises, the fulfillment of eternal purpose, the return of Jesus. That's what marks this event, the second coming of Christ. That is what Peter is speaking of there. He says it's at hand, which means to draw or come near, to approach. The consummation of God's eternal promises, the fulfillment of his eternal purpose is drawing near, he says. It approaches. It stands at the door and knocks almost. In fact, the phrase we see there in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. When you look at that phrase, it is presented in the perfect tense. And what that means is this. It indicates a completed process so that the end is right here. The process is done. Everything is ready. We're just waiting. It can happen any moment. The implication is very simple. The return of Christ is imminent. There is nothing at all restraining Jesus from coming other than the Father's word. And it's imminent for the Father to say, it's time. Son, go get my children. Peter points out that the imminent return of Christ is upon us. He can return at any moment. Some of you are like me, and you've heard that since you've been a little bitty kid. 
But you look at the world today, you go and look at the prophecies that needed to be fulfilled for everything to fall in place. You look at the things that need to be laid out and there's nothing stopping him. It's done. It's there. It's ready. In fact, the very last recorded words of Jesus Christ in the Bible, he says, surely I am coming quickly. Jesus is returning. Peter points it out. Yes, you suffering saints, it's difficult for you. And you had this suffering Savior who's provided all this to you. But his return is near. It's imminent. It's upon us. Now, there's some things we need to recognize in that, some things we need to consider. One being the fact that the return of Jesus will take people unaware. There are many people who will be caught off guard, taken by surprise, completely unready. The Bible teaches this in multiple places. In Matthew 24, verses 36 through 44, Jesus speaks to this. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. There'll be people taken unaware. Because in reality, the angels don't even know when Jesus will return. Jesus himself said he was limited in that knowledge. Only God the Father has it. And we have a world full of people who will be taken unaware when the event happens. Jesus describes it as being like the days of Noah. You remember the description of the world there from Genesis chapter 6, how the wicked of the world were so self-absorbed that they were taken off guard by the flood. Even though Noah preached for 120 years, they were still taken by surprise. They were warned, yet they were so caught up in their own desires and their own activities and their own lives, they were caught off guard. The wicked world went about their ordinary activities. They lived their daily lives. They enjoyed their parties and festivities. They indulged themselves. They only were concerned with their little world, their little life. And they didn't care about the impending judgment coming. When you go back and read the account in Genesis, you'll find that even Noah and his family didn't know exactly when the judgment would come. They simply responded to faith to God's provision of salvation And at the right time, God saved them from judgment. And the reality is those in our world today are no different. Our world today is full of people consumed with their activities, their pursuits, their agendas, their desires, their own little world, what they've got to get, grabbing their piece of the pie. They're so wrapped up in themselves, they have no clue of impending judgment that is coming. The priority of self-gratification and self-fulfillment, it just dominates people so that they have no regard of repentance, understanding that the return of Christ is imminent. The world will be caught off guard when Christ returns. The Bible, it describes it. In 1 Thessalonians, the Bible says that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. It says that people will be saying peace and safety and then all of a sudden destruction comes upon them. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. And yet understanding that people will be taken unaware and sadly I believe that there are many born again believers 
who'll be surprised when it happens. I think there are born-again believers who are so distant from a daily personal walk with the Lord, so distant from communing with their Heavenly Father, so foreign to being in contact with the Holy Spirit as He guides them, they're so out of touch that they'll be surprised when Christ returns. They won't be ready. But that's a shame because the reality is this, my friends. Disciples of Christ are admonished to be ready. That's what Jesus said there in Matthew 24. He says, therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. As followers of Christ, what is our admonition in regard to the imminent return of Christ? Be ready. Be ready. Jesus told parables about this. He taught about this. I won't go into all of it, but the gist is this. Don't be caught sleeping. Be ready. Don't just sit there and look up into the sky and do nothing. Be about his work, but be ready. Be ready. In Mark 13, we're told to be ready so he doesn't find us sleeping. In 1 Corinthians 1, we should eagerly await the return of Christ. In Luke 21, we're not to be weighted down with worldly concern, but to watch prayerfully as he's coming. In James chapter 5, we're to prepare our hearts in regard to the Lord's return. In 1 Timothy 6, we must keep his commandments without spot, looking because he's coming. In Titus chapter 2, We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to be ready. We're to be ready. You see, Peter draws the attention of his audience to the reality that Christ is returning. It's imminent. It can happen any moment, and you need to be ready. You need to be ready. Now, how does that affect me? Why is that important? Because having an ongoing expectation of Christ's return motivates the kind of life I live. If I truly recognize the end is at hand, it motivates how I live my life. It dictates what I do. It pushes me to pursue holiness It pushes me to grow in the character of Christ and pursue his Christ-likeness as I grow in the fruits of the Spirit. It burdens me for those lost souls around me, knowing judgment is impending and is going to fall upon them. It motivates how I live my life when I recognize the end is at hand. Christ followers have been expecting this event for 2,000 years. The reality is each day that passes brings the return of Christ ever closer so that we should be all the more serious about recognizing the end is at hand and being ready. I wonder, are you ready? If in God's sovereign timetable, the clock clicked down to zero in this moment, and the Father said, it's time, that archangel shouted and blew the trumpet, and the eastern sky split with the return of Christ, would you be ready? Is your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you called out to him with a repentant heart of faith, accepting him as your savior, your only hope? The one who can make you right before God, the one that can make you a part of God's family, the one who died on the cross to pay for your sins, rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death, and offers you eternal life. Have you called out to him? Are you ready? Oh, yeah, I've done that. I'm a child of God. I'm a born-again believer. Well, great. Now, as a disciple of Christ, are you ready? Does the reality of this moment and its impending occurrence drive you to pursue holiness and grow in Christ's likeness and burden you for the lost? Are you ready? See, in Matthew 24, that's the one directive Jesus gives. 
be ready. Be ready. So Paul, excuse me, Peter. Peter here says, but the end of all things is at hand. And then there's a therefore. So he's going to tell us what to do because the end is at hand. He goes from recognizing the end to telling us what we should be doing in responding to the end. He wants us to know. Here's what you should do in responding to the end. There are certain things you need to do. Understanding that the return of Christ is imminent, let me tell you some things you need to be doing. Now remember, he's writing to born-again believers. He's writing to people within the church. He's writing to those who are only secure in their salvation and they're part of a body of believers. That's who his audience is. And here in verses 7 through 11, he gives some very specific actions that believers should take in response to their understanding that the return of Christ is imminent. What should they be doing? The first thing he says, you see it there in verse 7, be serious and watchful. Be serious and and watchful. Now this is a statement that references your state of mind, your way of thinking. In the, in the perspective of reality, as I understand the return of Jesus is upon us, I need to be serious and watchful in my state of mind, my way of thinking. That is, I need to exercise sound judgment and spiritual alertness. That's what he's calling for here. I must exercise sound judgment and spiritual alertness. This will enable me to keep the right mindset or, 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 or mindset and maintain my thinking, to control my thoughts, to take my thoughts captive and focus my mind specifically with sound judgment and spiritual alertness. This is guarding myself so I'm not carried away by improper thinking or uncontrolled passions or that which prohibits me from facing or focusing my mind on Christ. It's a call to fix our minds on spiritual priorities, kingdom priorities, righteous priorities. We must fix our minds on the things of God. Be controlled in our thinking. Use sound judgment with spiritual alertness. We need to focus our minds on heavenly priorities, those kingdom priorities, spiritual priorities. The book of Colossians chapter 3, the chapter begins by saying, If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not things on the earth. Focus and fix your thoughts on heavenly things. Drive your thinking deliberately towards God. Back to Titus 2 that I referenced earlier. That passage begins... For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the coming of Christ. I deny ungodliness and worldliness. What's that? I control my thoughts. I deliberately direct my thinking towards that which is righteous and promotes holiness. I use sound judgment with spiritual alertness. I control my thoughts so that I have a heavenly perspective about what's going on around me. I have a heavenly perspective about how things are playing out. I have a biblical worldview in regard to what's happening. I work hard to guard my mind, to keep my thoughts free from anything that would pollute my pursuit of holiness. I win the battle of the mind. I set my mind on things above. I exercise sound judgment and spiritual alertness. And he references this in regard to our prayers. You'll notice that sound judgment and spiritual alertness becomes particularly important in our prayer life. 
Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. You see, to pray properly, I have to pray with the proper mindset. To pray properly, I need to pray with the right way of thinking, the right perspective. When I have the right frame of mind, when I have a mind of sound judgment, of spiritual alertness, a mind that is focused on that which is spiritual, even through my prayers, I find an enhancement of my communion with the Father. My prayer life reflects the righteous and heavenly priorities that he holds as I have focused my mind on those things and fixed my things, my mind on things above. And I pursue him. I pursue his holiness and it enhances my closeness with him. And so the first act that we can utilize, the first action we can implement, the first thing that we can be proactive in doing is to be serious and watchful. To have sound judgment with a spiritual alertness. To control our minds and focus them deliberately. He goes on though. He moves on to a second specific action to take. Once again, these are all within the body. This is in verse 8. He says that we should fervently love one another. We should fervently love one another. Now, the love mentioned here, that word love, is the agape love we talk about. It's the love demonstrated by God. It's the divine love. It is the love of God that was demonstrated as he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is the love of Christ as he hangs on the cross, having full authority to come off the cross, but won't because he loves us. It is a divine love. It's the love of God. It is the love of God, Romans says, is poured out into our hearts when we come to faith in him. It is the love of God in us and through us. That's the kind of love mentioned here. It is the love that is implanted and grown in us once we come to faith. It is the love of Christ within us. This love that's implanted and grown within us is the love that allows us to deliberately choose to love others, even those who seem unlovable. Once again, this is in the context of believers. So the admonition is that believers should have a divine love for one another. A divine love demonstrated towards one another. The love of God in us and through us. And it's described as being a fervent love. That becomes important. This love is to be fervent because fervent refers to the stretching. To be stretched to an extreme limit, to be stretched out, to go to the fullest extent, the maximum effort there is. That's how that divine love is to be expressed. To the fullest stretching of our abilities. The love of God within us is stretched to the fullest extent so that we offer love to everyone, regardless of the situation. You see, this is not a human love. It's not a worldly love. It's not a love that's based in human ability. This is divine love, the love of God imparted to those who are his children, who by the work of the Holy Spirit can fervently stretch themselves to love others, even those who aren't lovable. Even those who are hurtful and spiteful and mean. It's love that's offered in spite of being insulted or receiving injury or being involved in a misunderstanding. It's love that's offered in spite of a disagreement or having differing opinions. It's love that is sacrificial and selfless and will demean self for the betterment of others. It's fervent, stretched, divine love. That's the love that's called for within the body. A divine love that really knows no limits. A love that functions within the body of Christ among God's people to overcome every disagreement or disillusionment or argument, any selfish act or whatever it might be. 
And notice the description goes on. Not only is this a fervent love, but look what it does. It says, for love will cover a multitude of sins. That's what this love does. It covers a multitude of sins. Now we all understand that God and His great love demonstrates grace and forgiveness to humanity. We understand that He offers forgiveness through Christ, that He buries the guilt of the repentant in the depths of His love, and He never brings it up again. That's what God does. And that is the example we're to follow with fervent love. That's the example we're to pursue and try to live up to. Our love should be a love that is forgiving. The reality is this. As we practice this fervent love among the body of Christ... you will have to be stretched. Because somewhere along the way, someone is going to hurt your feelings. I promise it will happen. Somewhere along the way, there's going to be a disagreement about something. Somewhere along the way, issues will be talked about and there will be differing opinions put forth. Somewhere along the way, someone will do something, and it will really hurt you. I can say those things because I've been on the wrong end of every one of them, and I've probably been the cause of a few of them. Because I haven't achieved perfection, and no one else in the church has either. And we do things sometimes that hurt one another. Hopefully not intentionally. But when we're practicing fervent love, an aspect of that is we forgive one another. We forgive. As God offered forgiveness to us when we came in repentance and he took our guilt and he buried it in the depths of his love, we forgive others and we let it go. We forgive. Part of this fervent love is not only forgiving, but it is loving others so that we seek to restore those who do sin. We seek to be agents of restoration among brothers and sisters who fall into sin, who fall into some type of moral bankruptcy or or have a moral problem. Those who make a mistake, we want to see them restored. We don't point out their failures. We don't gossip about their sin. We simply want to be peacemakers and agents of restoration through love. We want to see reconciliation with God and the church and so we stretch our fervent love to wrap around them and bring them back. Our love should be a love that doesn't hold a grudge. It doesn't bring up past discrepancies. It's a love that seeks the benefit of others. It wants the best for others. And this is the kind of love that gives you assurance you're part of God's family. It's the kind of love that when it functions in you and through you, you're assured, hey, I know I'm part of God's family. Listen to what the Bible says. It tells us that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. How can I know that I've passed from death to life? Because I do have this genuine fervent love for others. It's testimony to my spirit that I'm a child of God because the love of God is within me, implanted within me, and shown to others. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 13 says, By this all will know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. The world should recognize us because of the love we have for one another. Jesus didn't say the world will recognize you because you love the world. He said, the world will recognize you because you have love one for another. Our fervent love for each other should be such that even the world recognizes we're followers of Christ because of the way we love one another. He goes on. He gives another action we can embark upon. Another action to implement. The third thing he mentions here is that We can be hospitable to one another. See that in verse 9. You can be hospitable to one another. Now this is pretty interesting 
Because hospitable to one another is an interesting phrase. We need to break that down. You see, hospitable literally means to love strangers. To apply God's love that's implanted into us and demonstrate it to strangers. That's what the call to hospitality is. Yet, Peter partners the word hospitable with the phrase one another, those within the family of faith. So when you partner those together, here's what we find. We are to take our fervent love and move beyond our circle of friends and familiar church family and offer it to other believers among the fellowship. This fervent love that we practice in the body of Christ, Peter says we should also take that and get it out of your little bubble of your four or five that you're really comfortable with and move it across the church to that pew or that pew or that pew, to that group or this group or that group, and demonstrate fervent love to those believers as well. It is a call within the church to take fervent love and break it out of your little circle so that others know the love you have for them. Believers you may not know well, you may just know them by name. You may just recognize their face. Or maybe they're just visitors who rolled into the church and you've never met them. You're called to take that fervent love and move out of your little comfort zone and take it to them so that they feel that fervent love. Be hospitable to one another. It's intentionally engaging others within the church. Not just your little friend group. What Rainer calls that holy huddle. Not just your little holy huddle, but other people. It's being deliberate to go out of your way to show love to those you're unfamiliar with. That's what that phrase, being hospitable to one another, references. We need to give specific attention to demonstrating fervent love to those we encounter. These are people of faith we're talking about. Hebrews 13, verses 1 and 2 say this. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Have you ever thought, I have, I've thought about this before, how shameful it would be to one day find out that God sent an angel to visit the church and we failed to demonstrate fervent love and be welcoming The scripture says people unwittingly entertain angels. They never even know it. We're called to demonstrate a fervent love within the church and to take that in the practice of hospitality to those we're not familiar with who come into the church. But it doesn't just stop there. I really believe this phrase be hospitable to one another. It's a call to be intentional about supporting Christ followers, encouraging believers, being engaged in loving other Christians in whatever area you find yourself, even in all arenas of secular life. In the classroom at school, when there is a fellow believer, they need to know they have your support. On the job site, when there's a fellow believer, they need to know there's a camaraderie there. In your neighborhood, when there's a fellow believer, they need to know they have your support and prayers. It's really kind of what Galatians references when it talks about we can demonstrate fervent love for one another by doing good to all people, but especially, Galatians says, especially those who are of the household of faith. Yeah, we want to do good to everybody, and yeah, we want to love all people, but especially those of the household of faith. My fervent love needs to be poured out among my church family, 
those I love and am familiar with and have such a good time with. It needs to spill over to those I'm not familiar with, those I need to get to know in that way and become close to. It needs to spill out into the areas of my life where I encounter other believers who can use the encouragement and love I can offer them. And notice how this is practiced. Did you notice that? Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Without grumbling. There are those who will go out of their way and say they're doing it to love a stranger, but then complain about it. Let me tell you, if you go out of your way to love a stranger, but you complain about it, you are not exercising true hospitality nor demonstrating fervent love. If you go out of your way to be hospitable and they want to complain about it, you're not hospitable. If you want to go out of your way to demonstrate love and then complain about it, you're not loving. To complain and grumble is indicative of another problem. Hospitality is to be offered in love without complaint, even when it is inconvenient, even when I have to give up and make personal sacrifices to do so, because God calls me to do just that. Peter continues. He gives another Specific action we need to implement. The fourth thing, the final thing he says. Because the end is at hand, there are some things we need to be doing. One of those things he says is we need to minister to one another. You see this in verses 10 and 11. We need to minister to one another. Notice he says, as each one has received a gift, minister it. To one another. That is serving one another through the application of spiritual gifts. That's what that refers to there. We minister to one another, we serve one another because God has gifted us in some way to serve the body, to serve other believers within the church. We exercise our spiritual gifts to do that. My friends, every born again believer has at least one spiritual gift. If you are a born again believer here today, you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit in some way. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, There are diversities of gift, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. You have been equipped in some way, gifted in some way. You have an ability that God has entrusted to you to minister, to serve those within the body. And that's exactly what we do with our gifts. We use these God-given abilities to serve the body of Christ. Every church member has a function. You have a purpose. You have a function. You engage that particular function. And when you do, you make the church whole. And you do that as you're serving your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, for the church to be healthy, every individual member must be exercising his or her spiritual gift. Our church will never be fully whole, fully functioning, as long as there's one person who refuses to exercise his or her spiritual gift. In fact, I want you to know, failing to utilize your spiritual gift is being disobedient to God. You cannot receive a gift from the Holy Spirit, an ability, a talent and sit on it, that's disobedience to God. I know it is because in Romans chapter 12, the Bible very clearly says those endowed with spiritual gifts must exercise them. So to be gifted with an ability from God and not to use it is to be disobedient to his word. Now some of you are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I, I'm still trying to figure this thing out. I'm not exactly sure how I'm gifted or what I'm, I'm really called to do or... Don't panic. I'm not saying you're being disobedient to God. But to know what God is calling you to do, to know the area of service God wants you to engage in, to know things that need to be done, and to know in your heart, I could do that. To know the ability God has given you or the spiritual giftedness he's endowed to you and then not to do anything with it, that's being disobedient to God. And I want you to know we're held accountable to using our spiritual gifts in serving the body. Let's continue looking at the scripture. 
It says, as each one has received a gift, minister to one another as good stewards. As good stewards. How do I exercise my spiritual gift? As a good steward of that gift. Just as we are called to be good stewards over our finances or our possessions or our time, we are to be good stewards over the talents that the Holy Spirit has endowed us with. That ability that God has given you, that talent, that spiritual gift, you are to manage for His glory. You're to be a good steward over it. You're to use it appropriately. You're to use it to serve others. You serve others with your spiritual gift in obedience to God. And I want you to know there's a great variety of gifts. There's a great variety of expressions of those gifts. Notice the phrase, good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We are gifted according to the manifold grace of God. Now, that's pretty interesting. That word manifold means to have a lot of colors or to be multifaceted. By God's grace, there's a great variety of giftedness and expressions of giftedness. We don't all have the same giftedness. In fact, some of us who have the same spiritual gifts haven't been formed by God to express those gifts exactly the same. It's a multifaceted thing that only God can do to make his church complete. Spiritual gifts are greatly varied and they're all very important. Members of the church hold multifaceted giftedness that enables the church to be completely whole, to have all the parts it needs, to have all the functions it needs. And this is all based on God's wisdom given by His grace. It leads to a uniqueness of giftedness. And we combine our unique giftedness to make a wholeness within a church as we serve one another. And every gift is important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 15 through 25, it reveals to us that every spiritual gift is valuable. Every spiritual gift deserves honor. Every spiritual gift is needed to complete the church. Every spiritual gift plays a role in advancing the kingdom. You see, sometimes we think we can give priority to certain gifts, certain talents, certain callings. Well, those who teach Sunday school, we just can't do without them. Or those who lead the worship, we can't do without them. Uh, those who preach the word, we can't do without them. Those who, you know, do this or that up in the front. Those who are seen. But according to God's word, what we would consider trivial, the most minute little act of service that's done behind the scenes that no one ever sees, no one ever knows about, is done in the back room of the church somewhere on a Tuesday morning and no one knows what happened, but it was done. That is just as valuable as someone preaching the word because it takes all of it to make the church whole and complete and fully functional. And every area of giftedness, every talent given, every act of service God calls you into is valuable and honorable and needed. So what if you don't get to stand in front? Could be you're not as pretty as I am. But if what you're called to do, no one ever even knows you do, but you do it. It's advancing the kingdom of God and making the church fully functional. So do it. Serve the body of Christ. Serve others that way. Your gift is multifaceted. That's the way it works. We have men and women in our church who are gifted in teaching. And God has designed them differently. They don't all, they don't all teach the same, but they all teach the truth. Even in having the same spiritual gift, they don't have the same expression of how it plays out. It's multifaceted. It's varied. It's a beautiful thing when you consider it. Now here Peter just puts two big umbrella categories for spiritual gifts in this text. He's just lumping everything under two groups. 
One group being speaking gifts, the other group being gifts of service. The gifts of speaking involve things that we would recognize like preaching or teaching or speaking wisdom or voicing discernment and so forth. But notice the qualification given here. If you have a speaking gift, you must speak the oracles of God. That simply is the truth of God revealed in His Word. Those who have gifts that involve speaking, speak the truth of God as revealed in the Bible. Then there's the other category, gifts of service. Those who administer through administration or prayer works or mercies or helps or things of that nature, often behind the scenes, by the way. Notice the qualification for them. Exercise these gifts with the ability which God supplies. So even an act of setting up for a fellowship that no one knows you do, you do through the ability God has given you to serve his body. There's no little thing you do in the kingdom. It's all valuable. It's all valuable. All spiritual gifts are endowed by the Holy Spirit, exercised under his direction and equipping, and for the benefit of the members of the church. So, understanding that the return of Christ is imminent, the end is at hand, I wonder, are we being deliberate to exercise sound judgment with a spiritual alertness, played out with a fervent love, demonstrating hospitality, whereby we serve one another to make the body complete? Those are four things Paul says, excuse me, Peter Peter says we should be doing in regard to the return of Christ. But he wraps it all up in one final point. He talks about the result of responding to the end. When I recognize the end and I respond to the end, there's a result that's produced. Something that happens. In fact, it is the one primary goal for believers who faithfully are responding to the imminent return of Christ. This all has one ultimate goal. One thing that dominates our thoughts, that dominates our agenda, that dominates our desires. And that is the glory of God the Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's all leading to. You see that there in verse 11. When I recognize the return of Christ and I'm working to be ready, I'm implementing the particular things I need to do within the body of Christ to be a functioning full member who demonstrates the fervent love and hospitality of the Lord Jesus Christ. It results in bringing glory to God the Father and to my Lord and Savior. I bring glory and honor to the one who really deserves it. Now notice what it says here. This is verse 11. It talks about if anyone speaks, let him speak with the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do so with the ability which God supplies. Then listen, that in all things God may be glorified. In all things. That is, in all matters of Christian faith, life, and service, we intend to bring glory to God. When I have the right perspective of mine and I have the right actions within the church, when I'm living my life with the right heavenly perspective and biblical worldview to demonstrate fervent love, the reality is, in all things, I bring glory to God. In every avenue of life. It goes back to what Paul said to the Corinthians when he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. It's the same concept. Our intent should be that every action, attitude, and word of our life brings honor and glory to our Lord. Everything does. Why? Well, because look to whom it belongs. The very end of that verse. To whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Every fiber of my being and part of my existence focused on bringing glory and honor to the Lord. Why? Because glory and dominion belong to Him. 
Glory doesn't belong to the Heisman Trophy winner. Glory doesn't belong to whoever will win the Super Bowl. Glory doesn't belong to the most successful pop musician. Glory doesn't belong to those who produce the biggest grossing movie. Glory doesn't belong to the president or whoever. Glory and dominion belongs only to our Lord and Savior. That's who glory and dominion belong to. And so the entirety of our life focused on bringing glory and honor to Him. Our Lord Jesus holds eternal glory and dominion. And that's who glory and honor belongs to. And I'm just going to tell you this. When we live our lives so that glory and honor are not magnified upon Jesus, we're living our lives wrong. There's something out of whack. Because the entirety of our lives and how we live them should serve to magnify and glorify the one to whom glory and dominion belongs, the Lord Jesus. And I really believe that if we're mindful of Christ's return and we're deliberate in our living, that will enable us to glorify our Lord personally and corporately and before the world so they know who we serve. So my friends, we need to live each moment as if the end is near. Because it is. We need to exercise sound judgment. We need to live our lives with expressions of fervent love. We need to be serving one another, all for the glory and honor of our great God and Savior. Does that describe you? Would you bow your heads? Father, I just ask now, that you would burn each of our hearts to respond to you so that we might be who you're calling us to be. Help us, Lord, to grow in this moment in the likeness of Christ. Lord, prune those things from us that are hindrances. Lord, those who are struggling with personal faith in Jesus, where they stand with you in eternity, their readiness for Christ's return, Lord, give them clarity in this moment through your spirit to call out to you with a heart of repentance and faith. Lord, just take control of this invitation as we dedicate it to you.